From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ's Eye on Congress Big Story Podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. Sometimes big events loom large because you don't prepare for the possibility. The United Kingdom's exit from the European Union is one such example. Talking about that today is David Rennie, Washington bureau chief and Lexington columnist of The Economist, who has also spent five years in Brussels covering the EU, and CQ Roll Call chief content officer David Ellis, who spent more than a decade in London. Uh, Guys, this is uh, obviously a a seismic event. Maybe the easiest way to start is to enumerate who are the biggest winners and losers. David Rennie? Well, uh, the biggest political loser is obviously the prime minister. We've had the prime minister resign, and it's the kind of news day where that isn't the top headline, uh, which is pretty unusual. (laughs) Uh, We've also got a leadership challenge uh, for the leader of the opposition, uh, the Labour leader. But I think the biggest losers, and not to be kind of too pious about this, the biggest losers are the British people. Uh, because I think that uh, the promises made to them by the Leave campaign uh, can't be delivered. And I think you'll see people losing their jobs, companies moving to other countries, uh, and, uh, and, a, and a self-inflicted recession. The um, talk of getting rid of immigration, closing borders, of British sovereignty that the Leave movement was pushing uh, has some obvious parallels with the rhetoric Donald Trump has used and some in the Tea Party in the United States have used as well. Is that an oversimplification or...? It's, it's, I think, an accurate parallel that some of the same forces that we see in the United States are at work, not just in Britain, but also elsewhere in the rich West, that kind of backlash against globalization, uh, that nostalgia, particularly among older uh, voters from kind of working communities uh, for a time when you could get a job for life and there wasn't competition from China or India. That nostalgia clearly played a huge role in this. But Britain is also, you know, a strange country when it comes to Europe. Uh, We joined 43 years ago, uh, not particularly with great enthusiasm. We've never loved the European Union. British hearts have never stirred at the sight of the European flag or sound of the European anthem. We sort of backed into it in the early 1970s because, to simplify, the British economy was a basket case uh, in the early 70s and Europe looked more dynamic. And I think the big thing that changed, certainly as far as uh, sort of members of parliament and the elites on the conservative side particularly, is that they grudgingly accepted some of the loss of sovereignty because it gave them access to those European markets. When Europe looked more of a basket case itself, particularly since the single currency crisis 2008 onwards, they sort of thought, well, if we, if we don't like being a member of the club and the other members look like they're broke, what are we still doing here? And you saw these kind of phrases that kept coming up like we're shackled to a corpse. That was a big, big change. Yeah, what I'd, I'd like to say is that uh, you see a generational split. So the people who ironically would have been in their uh, majority years and adulthood and maturing years, supposedly benefiting from the European Union, voted overwhelmingly to get out. And young people who are now, there's a lot of young voices in London complaining about being disenfranchised, their voices not being heard, but they also voted in smaller numbers. And that's a real lesson about what happens at the ballot box and why it's important to have your voice heard. That's really borne out by this uh, YouGov poll that we have of almost 5,000 uh, UK adults that showed only 38% of those aged 65 and over supported staying in the EU, just 42% of those in the age 50 to 64 age cohort did. But meanwhile, 66% of those in the age 18 to 24 camp were uh, wanted to remain. And that tells you else something really interesting, which I think has echoes in the Trump sort of debate here, which is 
it's too simple to say that this is all about people who are worried about the economy and their economic circumstances, because one of the lines you heard again and again during this Brexit debate was the foreigners are taking our jobs. But if you look at the exit polls, there was another very large exit poll that came out today. Um, the strongest vote to leave came from people who've retired and aren't worried about someone taking their job because they've already retired and they're getting a state pension. And the strongest vote to stay came from people under 25 who precisely are going to be competing with those mostly young European migrants into the EU. So I think David is absolutely right that this was also very strongly about identity and that idea of taking back control. And I think that idea of kind of unabashed nationalism, the same thing that you hear here, America first, tons of rhetoric in this campaign about Britain needs to do what's best for Britain. We need to make sure that this is in Britain's interest. That idea that cooperation is for chumps and for dummies, and it's time to be more selfish. And that really resonated. In other words, make Britain great again. <laughs> I think it would be look, look great on a red or uh, white hat. The other thing about what David mentioned was that the EU was sort of a sore tooth in the body politic of, uh, of Britain. I think now it's the main game because with the European settlement sort of blown up, the question of every level of relationship with Europe is now on the table. And I, do you see it, that being anything other than topic A for the next two, three, five years? I think that's right. And I think that one of the tragedies, I would say, you know, the Economist magazine strongly supported staying in the European Union, even though we've written any number of cover stories saying that the European Union is, is too bureaucratic, is not democratic enough, uh, is too protectionist often, you know, lots of criticisms. But here's the problem. We still remain 23 miles off the coast of France. We still export 45% of our exports go into the rest of the European Union. One of the tragedies for me last night was I, some of your listeners probably, you know, politi political geeks, and so they were watching the, the, the British TV, perhaps. They'll have seen that there was a gigantic shift uh, in sentiment very early on when a town, Sunderland, in the northeast of England, an old industrial town, kind of like a Rust Belt town here, voted strongly uh, for leave. And you saw the pound shed, you know, 3% in a matter of seconds. Sunderland is best known in economic terms for being home to a gigantic Nissan car plant. Now, that Nissan car plant at the moment, you can have a good job there making cars. They're all sold into the European market with no tariff barriers, no restrictions at all. The people of Britain have been sold a pup. They've been told you can have that unrestricted market. You can keep that great Nissan job and we can do a deal that stops Europeans being able to move to Britain and work. They're being promised a manifesto which is completely undeliverable. And I worry that those workers in places like Sunderland, they're going to lose their jobs because those are exactly the kind of plants that are going to move to the rest of Europe. Because why would you take, as you say, David, years of uncertainty about the terms of trade for, uh, for the next two, three, four, five, ten years? I saw an editorial cartoon this morning of uh, the European flag telling the Union Jack we're stronger together and then the Union Jack turning to the, three, you know, the flag that the crosses St. George and saying we're, we're better together. I think the idea of making the sovereignty argument, it doesn't end now for the United Kingdom. And the question now is, essentially, will it be a United Kingdom? That's a, that's a, it's a huge question. I think it may not happen as fast as some people expect. So you look at the map of who voted what, it's very clear that the map of Scotland is a different colour. Scotland voted to stay in the European Union. Part of that was, in fact, a reaction against a sense that this was an English nationalist project led by sort of posh Englishmen who don't sort of have many friends in Scotland. And the leader of the Scottish government, uh, who's also from the Scottish National Party, Nationalist Party, the Independence Party, said that, that, that logically 
there democratically needs to be a second independence referendum. A note of caution, though, I think, is that since we had a Scottish independence referendum last year uh, where they voted to stay, the numbers have only got worse for an independent Scotland. A lot of their numbers last year were based on an unrealistic imagination about how expensive oil would be. With the fall in the oil price, uh, with all the global uncertainty, uh, with the collapsing pound, I think actually you could find that there's a lot of rhetoric about Scotland walking out tomorrow. But it could be really hard for them because all the questions would come roaring back about would they use the euro? Would they want to adopt the euro? How do they pay their bills if oil is at a very low ebb? But you're right. There are some nightmarish things going on. It was really tragic last night for me as a as a Brit. Uh, I'm half English, half Scottish. I feel British. I also feel European. I don't want to have to choose. Now that choice has been made for me. One of the heartbreaking things last night was seeing the demographics that it wasn't just older people who voted to leave, younger people voted to stay. Even places like Northern Ireland, you saw Protestants who like British rule of Northern Ireland voting overwhelmingly to leave the European Union, Catholics who want more national unity with the rest of Ireland voting overwhelmingly to stay. You know, those kind of sectarian divisions wake a lot of very unhappy ghosts uh, that we thought had been put behind us. And that north of the border as well. I, I th- wouldn't that maybe change the equation when you have Edinburgh, which is a financial centre, Maybe you have an argument then, a nationalist argument that uh, the London-based financial operations can come up north to a independent Scotland. You heard that in good times. So you certainly heard a few years ago uh, the Scottish nationalists would point to countries like uh, Iceland and Ireland and they'd say, look at them, they're these little tiny islands with fantastically large, dynamic, booming bank sectors. What's changed since then, obviously, is that in the last few years, their gigantic financial centres blew up their economies and nearly killed them. And so I think the idea of being a kind of buccaneering, northern European kind of finance-driven <laughs> economy is a little less uh, appealing. Listeners in America may be thinking, why should I care about Lilliput versus Lilliput? You know, this is all a long way away. Here's a short-term reason why they should really care. Um, the last thing the American government needs right now is global turmoil in any significant economy. I mean, the American recovery is already very fragile. Five minutes after you panic about that, Britain is one of the very largest investors in the U.S. The total stock of British investment, foreign direct investment in the U.S. is half a trillion dollars. 800,000 workers in the U.S. work for British companies. It goes the other way too. Gigantic American companies, very, very active in the U.K. Mars Confectionery makes most of its confectionery for Europe in the U.K. Ford Motor Cars, a huge presence. Uh, Coors, uh, the beer company, uh, Molson Coors it is now, they, a third of their global sales, I think it is, are sold in the UK. Um, so they, they do not want a UK in a deep recession. In Washington, D.C., in Congress, in Capitol Hill, I would imagine they're looking pretty sort of anxiously at some of the big, sweeping, bold promises made by the Leave campaign during this campaign. They said, when we leave, our best friends in America, who we share a language with and an Anglo-Saxon kind of free market spirit with, they're going to be completely delighted to sign a free trade deal with the UK uh, as soon as we want one. And then you had Barack Obama went to the UK a couple of months ago and said, actually, the politics of free trade deals are really ugly right now. Um, Being as ugly as they are, we're trying to do big blocks one at a time. We want to do the European Union after Asia. If Britain wanted a free trade deal, they'd be back at the queue. In the UK, you saw this, how dare he, Barack Obama patronizing the British, are friends in the Republican Party. They'll see us right. We'll get this free trade deal. I suspect if you went and asked Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan, or Mitch McConnell, 
How much do you fancy spending the first weeks of the next Congress in January trying to get a free trade deal through this Congress? Is that really what they want on the top of their intray? And they're going to do it because they're in love with the Magna Carta and they feel soggy about Shakespeare? It's going to be fascinating how it elevates trade among the other issues at a time when Trump and to some extent Bernie Sanders have made it a radioactive uh, leading up to this election. I'm curious if you think Europe is going to try to punish the UK in some way in order to send a signal to others who might be thinking about doing the same thing. There are already uh, voices saying that they will. Uh, you have French ministers saying that uh, they don't want to make it look like an attractive option. Uh, you have uh, senior European officials like Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, uh, Martin Schulz, the president of the European Parliament, saying, you know, no sort of waiting around is going to have to happen fast. They want to, you have uh, members of the European Parliament wanting to strip financial services portfolio from uh, the British commissioner. The argument from the Leave campaign, who are busy saying today, hooray, hooray, we're independent, everything's going to be fantastic, is this fairly simplistic argument that because Britain buys more from Europe than it sells to Europe, that somehow the economic sort of self-interest of Europe is to do a sweet deal with us on the terms that we want. The problem with that is twofold, I think. One is bad economics. I mean, I buy more from Safeways than Safeways buys from me, but I'm not the boss of Safeways. You know, it matters which one of you is larger. And the UK is just one country, and we sell 45% of our exports uh, into Europe. Europe, only 17% of its exports are to the UK. There's also a political question. One of the remarkable things about the Leave campaign is their whole argument when it refers to the British, and I think this is an echo of Donald Trump and the Americans, is we should be more selfish. We should do what we want. We should do deals that suit us. We should put our identity first. But then, on the other side, they say, but the Europeans... They won't be like that because their economic rational self-interest and their bean counting will lead them to swallow their pride and do a deal that we, we fancy. But here's the thing. On the other side of the English Channel, France, Denmark, Germany, Sweden, all these countries, they're democracies too. They have politics too. Their governments are not free agents to do rational clinical bean counting deals uh, with a very aggressive Britain. They have electorates to answer to too. It's a remarkable kind of lack of curiosity about the politics on the other side of the English Channel. Yes, and what you're hearing today now are things that Eurocrats uh, said privately because they didn't want to be seen intervening into the referendum. But you have uh, people saying, we are not going to hold the EU's future to um, fights in the Tory party. And so I think one of the things we'll see now over the next four or five months is the cost of going it alone. So that will be unfolding over the summer and before the, U the U.S. election. And I can also tell you, as a Brit who's been based in, uh, this is my second posting in Washington, I've been here for a total of eight years now, seven years, um, it is true that being a Brit is nice in America. People are nice to you if you're British. They like the accent, you know, basically they think that Britain's a friendly country. But I'll also tell you that I've seen up close as a reporter, America is exceedingly unsentimental about its allies. I mean, there is no American president or speaker of the House or majority leader of the Senate, who is going to take considerable political pain for the UK just because they watch Downton Abbey and like Britain. You know, politics is domestic everywhere. Well, David Rennie, Washington Bureau Chief of The Economist magazine, David Ellis, Chief Content Officer of CQ Roll Call, my thanks, examining the immediate and longer-term implications of the Brexit. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs>